Welcome to Her Stories, a series of podcasts showcasing the diverse expertise, wisdom, and courage of the members of the Mediterranean Women Mediators Network, presented by peace activist Magda Zenon. In each episode, recorded during the coronavirus social isolation period, a different mediator shares her story. Hello, this is Magda. Today on Her Stories, we have with us Israeli diplomat, senior analyst, and present deputy director for African Affairs, Einat Schlein. Welcome, Einat. Hi, Magda. It's great to be with you. It's lovely to be with you after such a long time of speaking with each of not being able to see or speak with each other. Nice to see you. Um, Einat, you are a career diplomat, but I would like you to introduce yourself to the listeners because... Um, you and I share something quite common is we live in countries with long conflicts. So I would like you to introduce yourself to the listeners. Who is Einat? Well, my name is Einat. I was born and raised in Israel, lived there all my life, most of my life. I'm a diplomat, so I've traveled the world. And uh, I um, I always say, I'm sure we can dwell into this later, but I, I grew up in Israel where when Israel used to be an island in our view, that is, we didn't have any peaceful relationship with any of our neighbors. And in order to, and, and we were just an, an island of Israelis in a, in a sea of what seemed to be at that time um, a sea of hostility. We also had uh, many, many wars that were fought in my lifetime. I guess now we're up to like seven or even nine. And... Uh, and that was different, you know, and throughout my, my years, when I was first, when I was still in elementary school, we had our first peace agreement with an Arab nation, which was with Egypt. And then later we uh, signed a peace treaty with Jordan and we, we started this very lengthy process with the Palestinians. Things began to change, but it was very interesting to follow this as a, as a member of, of my community. And uh, I'm sure we're going to talk about narratives later, but... To me, this is one of the reasons I joined the foreign ministry. I studied um, Middle Eastern history in, at university, and then I joined the ministry, and I've been a career diplomat for 28 years. Mm. I was posted around the world, but mainly dealing with Israeli-Arab affairs and American affairs, worked a lot as an analyst, but I was also posted in the U.S. and in Jordan most recently. I was, uh, I, I was posted in Jordan twice most recently as an ambassador there. First Israeli woman ambassador to be posted to Jordan. Well, people tend to say this, but sometimes from a feminist point of view, uh, you know, uh, I, uh, I I somewhat resent it because I think that the most important thing is the fact that that uh, we have peace and we have a, a Jordanian ambassador in Israel and an Israeli ambassador in Amman. To me, that is most important rather than gender. Not that gender is not important. It is. But when I first came to Jordan, which was in January 95, a month after we opened the embassy, mm. I was very young. I came with my family and the gender really didn't play much of a role. We were all aliens, but I mean, not just aliens because we were foreigners. We were like from out of space, you know, and uh, the fact that, that we were Israelis and we were in Jordan and, you know, I speak fluent Arabic and most of us did that we can speak the language and we have so much in common. There's more that, that binds us than what separated us. Uh, back then, 20 odd years ago, and also today, with all the political differences, 
I think that was the most appealing yet odd sensation for the, for the people there. So we were aliens, whether we were male or female. <laughs> uh, but nevertheless, the, the, the miracle here is not me being the first female ambassador. It's, it's just that we have peace. To me, that is the miracle. Oh, I agree with you. And the fact that you start looking at similarities rather than differences is also more important. So we don't need, so I agree with you in your case, it was probably good that you were there and not necessarily, not specifically because you were a woman, because you were an Israeli in Jordan. Yeah. Um, yeah. Tell me, what's it like growing up in a land of conflict? I mean, I, well, uh, Cyprus is in conflict, but Cyprus is peaceful. Uh-huh. So we are, we, we've got a frozen conflict, which is slightly different to having nine wars. Um, yes, uh, on the one hand. On the other hand, it, it, it just depends. It was different throughout the different decades. What do I mean? When I grew up, I grew up in the, in the 70s, but I, have, I still have very vague memories, even of the war of 67. I was very young, but I have very few memories. And then, of course, the war in 73, I remember, and we grew up with this myth a narrative, of course, of the wars that mm. were fought or independence war in 48 and in 56. Uh, we had like a, a war per decade. And that does something to you. I mean, first of all, it got me very curious on the other side. What do they think? Who are they? Mm. Uh, you know, I was always uh, uh, infatuated by the Middle East. I studied Arabic. Uh, very few people know that, but Arabic as a formal language, you know, uh, was was taught and still is taught in Israel. The uh, Arabic-speaking uh, children study Hebrew, and the Hebrew-speaking uh, citizens study Arabic. So I started Arabic at, at, at fifth grade. Mm. Do you and, have to? Is and, it a, is, is it obligatory? Is it obligatory for you to study Arabic and for the uh, Arab children? In my hometown, yes. In okay. most, it, it depends also on the municipality, but in my hometown, by all means, okay. by all means, and. So I had years, you know, uh, you do it in elementary school, you do it in high school. I myself also took it to the next level because I also specialized in Middle Eastern affairs at the university. So I had many more years of Arabic. And then, of course, I lived in Jordan twice. So my, my language is, 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 uh, uh, skills are, have grown. Mm -hmm. But um, to me, it wasn't just the language. It was also the culture. Mm. And then came the politics. Even as a child, I uh, loved watching uh, movies in Arabic. We always had them on Friday night, uh, Friday afternoons when we only had one TV channel and everyone would have watched them. I remember sitting with my grandma and uh, watching these films. It taught me a lot about culture. It taught me proverbs, all of the things that the came couch. very handy later yes. when I actually went to the Arab world and worked with people. But But my point is that we were curious, yet uh, there was, a, I think, a, a combination of curiosity and some fear. And sometimes, you know, when you hear speeches, political speeches, of course, of the other side, you say to yourself, but this is a very different angle. This is not my angle. Things that they say are wrong. You cannot speak like this, uh, describing our motives or motivations, which was not the case from our point of view. And I think it taught me at a later age to realize that the importance of learning the other side's uh, narratives and listening to them. I always say this when I give uh, public lectures, especially to students and to uh, high schoolers that come to the ministry, but also to everyone else. I always say, understanding the other side's narrative doesn't mean accepting it. Mm. It doesn't mean that you give up your own narrative. I know my narrative very well, and I believe in it. 
But if you ever want to make peace, you need to understand the other side's strategies. You need to understand what makes them tick. You need to understand what would sound arrogant in their ears. And that is before even going into what do they need? What do they mm. really need? What is propaganda? What is the actual needs? But can I, interrupt, need- can I interrupt you? You need to understand sure. this, their starting point. For you to be able to speak to an enemy in inverted commas, you need to understand where they are coming from. Because if you don't understand yes. where they are coming you from, you're lost. Exactly. You need to understand where they're coming from. and uh, But if you want to go to the next level, it's beyond understanding. You need to understand, but you also need to acknowledge that. But that, yes. of course, is a very, very uh, much deeper uh, level that, that needs to be accepted. And that, of course, is a political issue mm. at the end of the day. But the fact that I understand that uh, there are two sides to the story doesn't take away from the strength of my belief yes. that in my rights. It just means that I respect the other side and that I'm creating a space where we can actually meet, mm. not necessarily agree. And definitely nobody would expect, I mean, I don't at least, I don't expect uh, uh, myself or anybody else to adopt the other side's narrative. But you have to listen and you have to acknowledge. And there's no way that you can do this without uh, first learning about them, talking to them, you know, knowing their culture. Mm. And there's, uh, you know what, I could tell stories uh, for hours about the lengths that, that simple proverbs in Arabic has taken me. <laughs> because if you know what to say in the right moment, you just say one little sentence or an idiom, and suddenly something clicks, you know, yes. and things open up. No, but I, I, I've always said in the Cyprus conflict, to me, the biggest mistake that was ever made was that in each side, the language of the other was taken out of the curriculums at school. It's vaguely uh-huh. in the schools in the South, you have it as an option when you're in the second last year of high school, but you have it as an option. To me, it should be in the schools from day one as a second language in both sides, because when you speak the language of the other, you're at least listening to their culture. You're at least able to speak to them in their own language. So there isn't, things don't get lost in translation and you don't get separated because now we in Cyprus speak to each other in English. Uh-huh. And that is a problem because, you know, when I, I can only imagine what it means to be on the same, you know, in the same island with two languages. Mm. But for us, also, even if we have borders and for those with which we have no borders, it's, I think it's a different conversation when you speak the same language. Mm. Mind you, if we speak of Palestinians, many of them speak fluent Hebrew. And uh, outside of the borders, you know, in the Arab countries, they, uh, uh, most people don't speak Hebrew. But the fact that I speak Arabic, not just me, I'm not that unique. All, you know, the colleagues that work in the Arab world, we, uh, we uh, excelled in Arabic. I think it opens new grounds. And I could always tell the difference between a conversation held in English or in Arabic. Yes. When you speak Arabic, you just, it becomes easier to talk even of the most difficult mm. uh, topics. Sometimes I, I actually noted that in times of friction, if these were, would be like professional conversations or a negotiation, in times of friction, you would see how people go back to English because it's harder to be, let me reverse this, it's easier to be um, very stubborn 
you know, when you speak English. Um, when you're not or, speaking or your own language. Mm. I would say better than stubborn. It's when you speak your own language and people actually can touch your, your, your you know, all the different points that, that makes you tick. It's, I'm not saying it's impossible, but sometimes you want to reverse, uh, revert to English. And that's why I always thought that, that language was definitely a, a very vital tool. But it's also knowing people and understanding them. Let me tell you a little story. When I was posted in Jordan the first time, it was a big deal. We just opened the embassy, you know, my family was the first family there. So I got interviewed in all sorts of places. And, and I remember the first year somebody came from the, uh, the only channel at the time of the Israeli TV to uh, interview me. And they said, uh, so how do you feel here? What, what is it like? You know, everybody wanted to know. What it's like and for I you said, to be in Jordan. Yes, exactly. Mm. Because it was so new. Mm. And Jordan was really, we could see, Jordan has the longest border with Israel. It's hundreds of kilometers. So you, you see the other side. Sometimes the proximity to the border, it was very, very close. Mm. It was a, a quiet border. You could not cross. But you could see the, the fields on the other sides and the orchards and, you, of course, the soldiers. But you could actually see people working in the fields mm. uh, the way that they could see us. But it was untouchable. You can't imagine the excitement I felt the first time that I actually crossed the border. Uh, that's a whole different story. But anyway, when they interviewed me to the Israeli TV, they asked me, how does it feel to be here? And I said, you know what? This is, it's wonderful. It's challenging, but it's also so surprising. You have like a cognitive dissonance. I mean, you get up in the morning and you look out around you. It's the same flora, you know, same flowers, mm -hmm. same plants, same smells. Uh, you know how it is when you go abroad and you look up to the sky and you see a different set of, of stars mm -hmm. abroad. But in Jordan and in Israel, it's the same stars. And, uh, you know, and you drive in your car and you hear the Israeli radio because you, uh, you could uh, hear it in Jordan. Yet at the same time, you drive in the streets, and this is not Israel, and uh, and people are speaking Arabic, and they're dressed differently, and the and the uh, the, the shops have has um, uh, titles in Arabic. So it's very confusing. On the one hand, you feel very much at home. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, you're not at home. And and out of this allegedly confused situation comes a lot of closeness, I think, because the, um, the more you talk to Jordanians back in the 90s, but also uh, in recent years when I was there as an ambassador, you would see that with all the political differences, there were many things that binded us together and we're, we are very close. And I don't want to start talking now about the, 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 the interest that binds us, us together, but even as a culture, there's a lot that binds us, mm. you know, as for family values and, and you know, and Islam and Judaism are, are much closer to each other than the two of them are to Christianity, by the way. And there are lots of uh, things that back up this, this feeling that I'm always trying to, to emphasize on rather than on the things that separate us. No, I agree with you. I mean, the same applies to Cyprus because we are the Turkish Cypriots and the Greek Cypriots are under the same sky. You yep. look across the, you've got the green line and you look across the checkpoint, you see the Czech the the army, but you can see the people. You can hear sometimes hear music from the other side. So it, it is. It's yeah. quite surreal. It's quite surreal because you're sometimes in the same place. You feel as if you're in the same place, but you're not. Yep. <laughs> so it's quite confusing. Uh, tell me, Anat, what role has what role does the education system play 
especially for us that live in conflict areas, in such um, divisive uh, communities? I think education, as well as popular culture, mm-hmm. uh, have a, a role to play. That is, of course, when you are in, in um, there are different levels of conflicts, you know, and but especially when you are in, in war times, if you look at the reflection of the wars in, uh, in the books, in the uh, textbooks, uh, the way they are described, the way the other side is described in, in textbooks, but also in popular uh, books, you know, in novels, mm. in, in children books. I think it helps shape the minds of the people. And, uh, and that is uh, definitely uh, an important point because what, you know that we can be as, 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 as educated as we might be, but you always bounce back to the things that your parents taught you and, and to many values that uh, uh, you learned as a child because it's very hard to turn your back to who you are. And, and you, you always have your roots in the ground. Mm. So um, in this regard, I'm, I'm thinking that this is one of the things we always emphasize about when we do negotiation for peace. It's about textbooks. It's about uh, vicious press and so on and so forth. And all of these things that shape the, the, the public's minds. And if there's one thing that I've learned throughout the years is that that is really important. And education is a key for success uh, in peace building and even negotiation. That is, I remember even as a young child meeting uh, people of the Arab countries abroad in the US when I was 17, they knew so little about us. I'm not saying that we knew everything about them, but we knew a lot more. And, and And it's very hard to create a conversation when people in a very, um, I want to say naive way, say things that 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 actually are 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 perceived as very offensive to the other side, that you don't know them. I'll, I'll give you an example. One of the 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 core elements in shaping the Israeli mind is the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. You know, the Holocaust was was uh, the the biggest tragedy in the history of the Jewish nation, as you know, six years and all the persecution before that, but during the Second World War, six million Jews mm. were, were uh, extinguished. There's no better way of, of and annihilated. There's no better way of saying that. Now, unfortunately, there are still countries around the world where this period is not common knowledge. Mm. And I, now I'm old and, and, you know, and I'm used to, to be confronted with this, but I can tell you as a child, as a teenager, and and even nowadays, sometimes I'm shocked when I, I, I meet people who are, uh, of course, the young people, but also the older and the educated people who have no, um, no clue of the magnitude of the Holocaust or that they uh, would say, yeah, but this is an exaggeration, it didn't really happen, it's a myth, and so on and so forth. For someone, uh, as I, I talked about narratives, somebody who grew up in Israel, this is the core issue for us. This is the, the this explained a lot of our of our being, a lot of our minds, and so on and so forth. And when you meet, and I have met people who say who have no clue that this thing actually happened, they cannot appreciate even our political point of view because they don't understand where we're coming from. Mm. And nowadays, with the internet, it became easier. But I would say up to the 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 beginning of the twenty first century, most people didn't have any access at all to these issues. 
So any conversation would start in a very odd place. And, and if you were not uh, accustomed to this or trained for that, I'm, I met lots of groups of, of youngsters who met people of the Arab world abroad and were shocked to, to hear that they thought that, you know, they didn't know anything of the Holocaust. They didn't know of the old uh, uh, Jewish kingdom that existed 2000 years ago. And, mm. and this whole narrative of, of uh, who we are, where are we coming from? What are our rights? What is our heritage when it is dismissed due to ignorance? No, no other reason. Mm. Then it's offensive, and then you cannot have a conversation. But it's what and, you. But it's what you say. What you've I, got to know about the past. You've got to acknowledge that it exists. You don't have to agree with it, but you've got to acknowledge that it's there. Um, exactly, and and it's, this is not about a calculated decision not to accept it. It's just that many young people don't know what actually happened, mm. and uh, the same way that. If if this was not wouldn't have the, all these wars were not have been included in uh, the wars and the history that led to them, you know, would not have been included in the Israeli textbooks. Kids of today would not have known about that. Mm. They are interested in very different things. Yes, you know, and things that happened even in in the nineties seems to be like ancient history to them. So my point is, I, I think it is our role as as not just as diplomats but also as people, as educators, as parents, as as uh, older family members to, to tell people that there is a, a different way and that we must know about the other people's history. And it's not accepting it. It's just knowing it in order to understand mm. how to approach them and how to create a space for conversation. But I think, I think that the most difficult part is knowing that you don't have to accept it. They, by uh, marrying that part that if I'm listening to you and I'm acknowledging this is this happened. It doesn't mean I have to accept it, but I have to acknowledge it. I yes. can disagree, but I have to acknowledge it. And I think there's a very fine line. People often think that by acknowledging it means I accept. And uh, that's why I emphasize it time and again. You know, every time I give lectures in this regard, and that's why I think you know again that language and and, and studying history is, is a tool. And at the same way, this is uh, that was me as a person, but also us as a government, we always make sure to look at textbooks. Mm. And, and we think that that is very important. Some people tend to dismiss it. But if you don't learn about the Holocaust in school, then it's very hard to accept the magnitude of such an atrocity. Mm. Or if you don't, uh, how could you even listen to claims when you don't know where they're coming from? So... I think it's it's a, it's an issue, and it's an issue that needs to be acknowledged. Mm. And we don't live in a perfect world, but we are trying to to bring the message out. And I'll tell you about something that we do as a ministry. We have a, we have an internet site in in Arabic. Uh, we also have a very active Facebook page, and we have a, you know an Instagram and all of these in Arabic. We have millions of people from the Arab world that connect with us through this uh, through these these means. Mm. And um, I wish you would have spoken Arabic, Magda. I would have sent you something. The two of my colleagues published just the other day talking about desertification, you know, fighting the, the, the desert, taking control yes. of, of the uh, cultivated land. So two of my colleagues recorded a really nice three minutes uh, piece and put it on the ministry's Facebook in Arabic about, you know, um, Israel's accomplishment in this regard, saying, you know, 
we face the same problem that you all are facing. This is what we do. We're happy to work with you on this. I think these things are at the bridge that even on difficult times, and we live in, in, in a difficult time, I mm. hope it's going to resolve. But nevertheless, these are the bridges, especially during internet times that we can actually use in order to maintain some some basis for conversation, a space with good spirit. But I think the most important thing in all of this is the fact that you le- you know the language of the other. Well, you could all, I'm not trying to dismiss those who does, don't speak the language no, no, of no. the other. God forbid. No, no, no. I'm just saying a... it makes it easier. No, I know from myself that I don't speak Turkish and I, I'm not angry at myself. I know that I would, it would be so much easier and my the things that I do would be which be would be so much more effective if I spoke Turkish. So I agree it's not dismissing the people that don't speak the language of the other but it certainly is a case for encouraging it in schools. And it's also uh you know if we think of of the uh, macro level but you know what even the micro level even the personal level it's a good tool in your toolbox. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, let's go to the other quality you have. I mean you're a woman. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In the work that you do, do you think, firstly, we all agreed because we are part of the Mediterranean Women Mediators Network that women need to be in peace processes and gender. Tell me a little mm-hmm. bit about it and how you fit into all of this. Well, I'll say, first of all, you know, this year in 2020, we are celebrating 20 years to uh, Security Council Resolution 1325 which asked to, to involve women in, uh, which calls for the involvement of women in, in uh, peace negotiation and mediations. But also the essence of it is the, the uh, I think the core essence of this resolution is to put women at the table mm. where decisions are being made. Now, I'm sure you and I could talk about this for hours, but <laughs> in short, I think that men and women, of course, are different, equal yet different. Mm. And I believe that both genders bring different qualities to the table. And it doesn't matter if you speak of a peace treaty or, uh, you know, a national plan to, to fight the coronavirus. They bring in different qualities, both needed to get a much better response. Mm. And in this regard, I think that my, my uh, gender was, was an asset for me, um, especially when you deal with people with whom you you actually had an active active hostility and you fought wars with you know when you come in and you come in good faith i'm sure you all of my male colleagues came in very good faith mm. but the fact that you know i never fought a war i'm a woman that also was helpful also i could connect at a different level you know as as i think this is not just me as a person but i think women in general are are much more capable to contain to hold a multifaceted process mm. to to see a much bigger picture and and to do things jointly some people may say that might be the lack of testosterone yes or no that's a different uh, conversation mm. but i think that to me that was very helpful and and even the fact that i'm a woman was always in all these these contexts the fact that i i am a woman i speak arabic i don't look like what the uh i would say the the uh, um mythical uh, israeli diplomat which of course doesn't exist would look like in the <laughs> arab world 
I think it, it opened a few doors for me because they would be always very surprised to see that I look, you know, like a normal person. Within brackets, we all do. <laughs> <laughs> that I'm a normal person. I, I speak the language. You know, I have a family. You would be surprised to see how many doors would open when you come in with a six-month-old baby, which is what I did when I first came to Jordan. Whoa. And, uh, and everybody thought he was cute and they started talking to me. And, uh, uh, but still, you bring in, you know, a, a different set of conversations. Mm. And, and that is a good thing because it's very important to be precise and to speak right to the point and be focused. You know, that is most important. I'm definitely all of that. But the ability to move from that also to a more personal conversation and inject something like an anecdote or to talk about your mom or your, your baby, you know, and to smile more. Mm. And the fact that I don't need to show that I'm stronger than anybody else. I'm just being me. And, and the way that I think like a woman, I think that is a quality that, that was really helpful to me. I have very, very capable colleagues just saying that the fact that I can be there and I don't need to win all the time. I think that was useful. And I think it, it, it helped me connect to people. And when I'm talking about people, when people think of negotiation or peace building, they think of a peace treaty, yes. which is the most important thing. I'm, I'm, I would agree. But peace treaty cannot just uh, exist in thin air. doesn't just peace happen. Exactly. Peace between governments would never stick. The only way to do real peace is to have peace between governments, mm. but also peace between people. Mm, that's true. It has to go into the, the popular level. The, the popular level is the cement of the peace bricks. And all of these, we call them in my language, dry letters, you know, of the, uh, of the agreement mm -hmm. would stay a dry letter on paper if we don't put some life into them. And the life is the, the, the people to people relationship. And I've done a lot of this in my years as a, as a diplomat, trying to build up the personal relationships be it uh, on my personal lives, you know, when I was posted in various places, but also professionally trying to bring together students with students, mm, uh, business true. people with business people, academic with academic, trying to find what binds them and what could benefit both sides, you know, a bit on, on cultural affairs or, or uh, you know, uh, growing, uh, growing herbs for, for export uh, to Europe, you know. Can I, just can I just interrupt you? It's, it's trying to find a common ground for people to work together and to take the thoughts away from a peace process per se. So you're actually connecting them, you're making the conversation a, a daily conversation without them realizing that what they're doing is building bridges between themselves. Exactly, because first of all, you need to implement those clauses of the peace treaty. Yes. And then you also, once you make it personal, and it's not just the business person, let's take business, for example, okay? Mm -hmm. It's not just the business person who is working in, uh, in the UAE or in Jordan or in Egypt and wants to do business with Israel because it's worthwhile or the Israeli businessmen going to all of these places to uh, find partners for a joint venture or for export or import, doesn't matter. Once they get together and they discuss the business, then they, of course, visit each other in their home countries. And then they meet the spouses. Mm. And then they meet the children. And then 
They share a plate of food. They have a plate of food together. Exactly. And they have a plate of food, whether it's the same food, which surprises them or something different. Exactly. And then they together. And then years after, and, and praise the Lord, you know, we've been having this with some of these countries for decades now. They're invited to the, to the children's weddings and to the grandchildren's uh, celebrations. And I know many, many people who started as plain business people just for the, with a very cold business interest and now are close friends. I have many such friends myself, but I'm also speaking of people who have nothing to do with the national level politics. Yes. You know, they are just friends and they care about each other and they help each other. And these are all circles that grow wider and wider. And, and you know, and if you've been carrying good business and also personal relationship with Israel for 20 years and then somebody uh, who, who is a friend of your daughter's husband says why would you work with the israelis they're enemies you know they are cruel and they would say you could say that might be correct on from your point of view but i also know other israelis mm. that would be uh, helpful and they helped me getting my father to a special uh, treatment you know medical treatment or that do you know how i enjoyed going to uh, for a vacation in israel and all of these things mm. you know to me this is the real peace peace between people and not just governments and that is priceless. I, and I agree. And I think it's on that level that women work better. The personal relationships, the shadows of, not the shadows, the community building, not the peace negotiation, the community building underneath that is day to day. Yep. And I, I would say both, you know. They go together. We do a lot on, on, on the official level, but we also bring in that other quality. And it is really, as this has been my dream since I've joined the ministry, you know, almost 28 years ago. Also, I have a, a degree in, you know, in, in uh, that, that focused in uh, um, negotiation and conflict resolution. This has been my dream always to sit in these negotiations. And I hope I will get to this. I will hope, I really hope, you know, now I'm senior enough to, to be included, you know, mm. I've done all the support work for these negotiations or that I've been the most junior person in the room when we were still implementing some of our clauses with the peace treaty with Jordan. I, I think there's a lot, the road uh, is still long ahead of us and I still want to be, you know, in that, be on that road, be in that room, sit at that table. And to me, this is a something dream. that, that is, is, uh, is a torch that I look at, you know, like a beacon that I focus my professional work uh, towards. And even now that I do African affairs, there, there are lots of, of commonalities, you know, uh, between us, of course, and, and the Africans, but also in the relationship, whatever we do, I think I've learned a lot from dealing with the uh, Middle Eastern conflict. Uh, unfortunately, you know, there are enough conflicts in Africa. And uh, <laughs> yes, they are. we're not, I'm not trying to, to, uh, to, um, to solve them, I wouldn't. I, I'm not saying that I know enough in order to to uh, to take a, a, um, an actual part of this. But I'm just saying, from all of this experience, you could. I, I learned so much when I look at the way the Africans are holding uh, their negotiations, the way that they carry their disputes. Sometimes it is hard. It, it's much easier to do this when it's not about you. Mm. You know. That's what I was going to so say. It might Offer be more advice it, and might, learn more. it might be easier for you to help in Africa than in Israel. But let's go to the Mediterranean Woman Mediators Network. Do you think they could play a role? They should play a role in helping you achieve your dream. You, not you 
specifically, but every or every woman that's involved or every woman with the ability or the aspiration, do you think, what role do you think they could play? I think they could play an important role by building up the base. As I said before, we need people to people. So women to women, I think are better in, in very carefully weaving these relationships, mm -hmm. first of all. Even if, you know, within the network, we meet people from various parts of, of the Mediterranean. And I meet people who are still uh, are from countries which still don't have any relations with us at all. And I think that the, the, uh, the network is providing a safe space for us to speak and to talk. We don't need to make it official. This is the beauty of the network, that it lets us speak freely and unofficially. Again, it doesn't take away from anybody's legal claims but, uh, or political claims, but the fact that we can actually talk in a quiet room and, be, and, and surround ourselves with, with our friends, just like you, Magda, yeah. who are not a part of our conflicts, and they can actually give us some of their own advice, the same way that I'm happy to contribute to other people's conflicts, you know, other nations, because I can be much more objective in this regard. I think it provides us a good basis. And of course, once we get back into the, the actual negotiations, if I speak of Israel and countries we have no relations with or we have no peace with, I think that it is my hope that the uh, women mediators who belong to the network would actually be able, through the conversations with people like me, to carry the message that there's a country like Israel they have their interests, they have their narratives. Again, we don't need to accept it, but this is where they're coming from. This is what makes them tick. I think all these things, all these little conversations uh, would be very effective and would be proven to be very effective once we go back to the table. And even in the meantime, these are good ways to relieve tensions and to, to ease the way. And even if, I hope I'm wrong here, even if we don't get to actual peace with all of the the you know the the eastern part of the of the Mediterranean, or we don't solve the Israeli Arab uh, or the Israeli Palestinian conflict within my my lifetime. At least we can set the basis for the next generations. And you know what? Even around the Mediterranean, there's a lot we could we could contribute. And last but not least, of course, if we all believe that women have have to have a place at the table, we need to and we know that we need to be twice as good as the men. Mm. Still, that is life. So throughout the work of the network, we excel. We polish our skills. We learn more. We, we meet. We talk. And we are much more prepared uh, for the time that we can actually go back to the table. And, and in this regard, the network is very important to me. But I also I will add something else, which is my strong quality. We also need to learn to amplify each other's voices. So we need to, um, I, I need to be able to say, I need to be able to say what good I have done without worrying about humility, which as women we are taught, blowing your own horn is not good. But I also need to be able to say, wow, my friend Anat has just done this. Isn't she awesome? So we need to, we need to amplify ourselves, our voices and our, the voices of our fellow women. I fully agree. And it's, of course, it's easier to amplify or to, to bring up the accomplishes, accomplishments of another woman. Yes, <laughs> because it is. Because <laughs> as you rightfully said, it's, it's a cultural thing, you know. 
uh, and it, it's really um, hard, you know. I always see this when I get applications for work, that the way, the difference between men and women, the way that they are uh, introducing themselves. A friend of mine works at a different ministry, showed me a study where you could actually see that statistically speaking, a woman would sign in or as a candidate for a tender of, for a job if she has at least 90% of the required <laughs> uh, skills. A man would, in most cases, sign in or try his luck if he has 10%. And that is amazing because when you think about it, think of yourself, would you ever try to, to uh, get a job where you know that you don't have 90% of the required qualities? I think Probably the answer not, is no. Yes. Because, because we are taught not to dare. Or at the same time, maybe if that is not correct, correct or not correct, um, we need to be much better than anybody else. That's why I think I would never apply for a job if I don't have the best qualities for it. So I know that I can compete with anyone. Because sometimes, you know, it's hard for us to speak up for ourselves. But I'm very happy to speak up about you, Magda, and any uh, member of the network. I think it's important. You're right. I think I think that's what I mean. I, it's something that I enjoy doing because I get so much joy out of seeing a woman and woman I know, even woman I don't know, a woman succeeding, because it's uh, it just gives me joy because it's less expected and they're fighting it, an uphill battle with patriarchy. So I do think we need to amplify each other's voices. And I do like what you brought up when you said that the network provides a safe space for conversations that perhaps cannot be held in an official's uh, space, this unofficial space to start building peace at a lower level that can then perhaps reflect at the official with with the official narrative or the official conversations. I lo- I, lo- I hadn't thought of it like that, and I think it's a really really important part of what the network can do. And is doing, I believe. I'm, I'm very grateful, you know, for the uh, Italian government's initiative to start out this uh, this network, which has grown now with the Global Alliance and so on. I, I thought that the meetings we had with uh, delegates of the other members were very useful. Mm. I think there's really a, a lot to be learned because we each one of us has uh, each one of us as a region. I want to say we have our own characteristics. Mm. And as we said before, you know, you could, uh, people from outside can tell us things about ourselves that we never thought about uh, on our own. Yet at the same time, as we all, uh, let's say in our network, in the Mediterranean network, we are warm and we're affectionate because this is our culture and that binds us as well. And I think it's very helpful uh, when we speak of, uh, of a space because you know what? I've been saying this for so many years, but I really believe that every person counts. Whatever you do, you know, whoever you talk to could be somebody who sells ice cream on the street. You know, if he or she are from the other side and mm. you talk to them and suddenly they see that they you have no horns and no tail. Mm. Or it could be uh, another government official or, or any emissary. But every person counts. And I have spent you know, thousands and thousands of hours of speaking to people because I think that, uh, you know, that, that it's important. In, in Judaism, they say that every person is a whole world. world. And, and in the peace business, that is definitely correct. Mm. One person at a time, that is what we need. And it takes a lot of patience and there are many frustrations, but 
if we believe that every person counts, I think we have a lifelong journey to, to, to lead with this thought and we, would, we could never fail because every day we'll find more people. And I think that's a perfect note to end this interview on. Every person counts and you certainly count. Very honored you came to speak on her stories. Enad? So much. And look forward to when we can move again and you either visiting us in Cyprus or we visiting you in Israel. It will be a pleasure. I'm looking forward. Be well, be healthy and regards to all. And to you too. Be well, be healthy and be safe. Thanks. If you enjoyed this episode of Her Stories, please leave comments, suggestions and reviews and share with anyone you feel may find this equally interesting. A big thank you to our sponsor, You and Woman, and see you on the next episode.